welcome to episode 348 of RPG Fans Retro Encounter. Adventure Game Month continues. We had a great time playing Monkey Island. Uh, we investigated some mystery with Wolf Among Us. And today, we've reached the Schaefer portion of our Gilbert Wolf Schaefer Wolf Continuum. Um, this is a very special, more recent Tim Schaefer game, Broken Age. Uh, it's one I personally really enjoy and backed myself. So I'm excited to talk about it. And with me, I have my fellow adventurers, John O'Logan. Hello, everyone. And Mike Salosi. Hey there. Yay. All right. So when we first set out on this journey together, Salosi, you mentioned a couple specific titles in your adventure gaming history, uh, Full Throttle and Grim Fandango. Uh, so it seems that while Jono has a LucasArts lens and I kind of have the Sierra lens, Solosi is a bit of a Schaefer expert, especially <laughs> since you're enjoying Psychonauts 2 right now as well. I, well, I, I guess that's fair. <laughs> um, I, I, I didn't mention this in the previous episodes, but I am a big fan of the uh, uh, mid-2000s platformer Psychonauts. I, I played that many years ago. Uh, it it might have been it, – it wasn't my first Tim Schaefer game, but I guess for a while it was my favorite. And – Inspired by playing Monkey Island two weeks ago, I decided, you, you know, I got Psychonauts 2 on sale over the summer. I think it's t finally time to bust that out. And I have been playing Psychonauts, Psychonauts 2 the past week or two weeks. It's um, it's awesome. It's not an RPG at all, so we don't have to waste a lot of time on it. But I, I think it's it's better than the original. And with apologies to Monkey Island and Full Throttle and Grim Fandango and Broken Age, I think Psychonauts 2 is my favorite Tim Schafer <laughs> game. It, it's really, really good. Oh, boy. Uh, Jack Black is in Broken Age. And yep. his uh, in, in Psychonauts 2, he he plays a brain that was in sensory deprivation for 20, for 20 years. So you have to jump inside the brain's mind palace, have it reunite with its bandmates, the senses of sight, smell, touch, hearing, and uh, and taste. And then when the band comes back together, you get a musical performance, uh, a, 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 an epic musical performance about sights and sounds, and it, it is it is amazing. And that's just, that's just like one level out of tw out of a dozen amazing ones. It's Psychonauts Two is special. I would podcast about it if it was an RPG. Tim Schafer's great. Broken Age also great. Tim Schafer's friendship, like professional relationship with uh, Jack Black, is is very it, it touches me. I think it's awesome. Yeah. They're just two very different, like they come from two very different worlds of entertainment, but they seem to really click. The <laughs> mutual appreciation is great. They seem like an excellent hang to me. Like, <laughs> like if, if I was visiting Black's like studio or Schaefer's workspace with the other, like it, that sounds like an amazing afternoon. Oh, they, they absolutely. Bo they both are sort of very just positive, creative men that I would love to meet in person. Also, when they grow their beards out, they're kind of gray now, and they both they kind of look like brothers a little bit. <laughs> yeah, like, like brothers or cousins or just two dudes that sort of grew up under similar circumstances. Like, it's a vibe. Yep. It is. It is. Well, I don't want to singularly give Tim all the credit for Broken Age, and we'll go into that and the wonderful team a little bit uh, that worked with him. But a little bit about him to start off. He started with LucasArts. We briefly mentioned this kind of in those prime days of adventure gaming with the Monkey Island team. And he's gained quite the reputation for his writing and dialogue flair. He worked with LucasArts in its various iterations uh, until he couldn't anymore, essentially, and founded a studio called Double Fine, uh, where he made some new games like Psychonauts and Brutal Legend. And then he reacquired the rights to some of his old games so he could re-release them. Um, 
So Double Fine is also responsible for Broken Age. Um, it is the product of an early Kickstarter fairy tale, essentially. Um, in February of 2012, Double Fine started a Kickstarter as an, at the time, unique way to see if there was money and interest in Tim writing another adventure game or in a new kind of adventure game by one of these like classic era creators. Uh, the response was overwhelming, as in this response to this Kickstarter still remains one of the like all-time high responses. And it helped establish Kickstarter in turn as a legit funding medium for games. Um, some indie games were using it and kind of gave Double Fine the idea a little bit, but it really helped kind of solidify it as an avenue to raise funds for games. And, you know, we're seeing kind of the consequences of this up through the recent Kickstarter for Arm Fantasia and Penny Blood. For the better or for the worse, this yeah. pioneered the, uh, the uh, Kickstarter model of financing games. Exactly. I, I would generally say Kickstarter uh, is a force for mostly good. Uh, it, the Double Fine Adventure Kickstarter has been eclipsed by other game projects, yep. especially board game projects. Board games on Kickstarter are, are all, their, their, own whole, uh, their own whole universe. Yep. But um, there were some gaming Kickstarter successes before Double Fine Adventure. Uh, FTL was a big success on Kickstarter. Yes. Uh, yes, before Double Fine Adventure, but but Double Fine Adventure made such a huge splash, both in volume and the creator behind it, that you can almost look at Kickstarter gaming projects like before Broken Age and after Broken Age. It was it was a major major uh, blip for sure. And what resulted was this two part game, Broken Age, that we played, and a truly fantastic documentary about the game making process um, that Tim and Double Fine felt they wouldn't be able to necessarily do in kind of genuine way if there were a publisher involved. So we'll get into that a little bit more, but if you're playing Broken Age, if you enjoy it at all, probably also worth it to watch the documentary Double Fine Adventure. Oh, it's so freaking good. So, all right, let's get to it. What did you all know about this game going in? What's your experience? What are your expectations? Uh, for me, I knew about it I mean, I was like, we've talked about adventure games and our history with adventure games in the mm -hmm. last few episodes. So I don't think we need to go through that again. Nope. But I, I know Tim Schafer. I knew his work very, very well. Um, and I was really excited when I heard about uh, when I heard about Broken Age. I did not hear about Double Fine Adventure. Um, looking at the Kickstarter now, it's it's very interesting to me that there is nothing about the game at all. Like they, when they, when they went to this, I just start a Kickstarter. Literally the concept was, Hey, Tim wants to make an adventure game. Uh, I'm sure he'll have an idea for one after you fund it. And that's what got all of this money. Like there's yeah. no art. There's no, there's, there's nothing. It's literally just, Hey, you remember all those games you liked when you were a kid, you want a new one. Okay. Give us money. And give they us did. money and Tim will come up with something. Yeah. And also documentary. I think, I was reading about the original budget and I think there was actually a bigger budget for the documentary than the game at first. They, well, it's, it's so funny with the documentary. We'll talk about the documentary, I suspect in a, in a minute, but like they, uh, you get to really see a behind the scenes look and like, they were not ready for the $3.3 million. Like they expected this to be like one step above a flash game. Mm -hmm. And then they got $3.3 .3 million and they're like, uh, now what do we do? It's really hilarious. Uh, the first part came out. I decided I wanted to play it as a whole. So I waited, uh, until the second part was released and I started playing it and I played about 15 minutes of it. Uh, I just 
fell off it. I just didn't play it. And then a few years later, I picked it up and played through the whole thing. And I liked it. I didn't love it. I liked it. Um, and uh, yeah, so I going into this podcast, I played the whole thing again. And to be honest, I liked it a lot better this time. Um, so yeah, I, I, I knew about it and I, I knew what I was getting into when we were going to record this. Awesome. Great. How about you, Celosi? Uh, it, it was a little bit different for me. Uh, I, again, I did play Full Throttle over 25 years ago, but I didn't really have that history of uh, appreciating LucasArts or adventure games in general um, the same way you or Jono does. But uh, I, I was aware of the Double Fine Adventure Kickstarter when it was happening. I've, I've closely followed game news like that for uh, my entire internet life, let's say. <laughs> um <laughs> But uh, so I was aware of it and I just went through my um, Steam purchase history uh, right before we started recording. I got uh, Broken Age in the Steam summer sale of 2016. So like I was definitely aware of the game. I was not part of the Kickstarter backers, but I, w- I, I did have a casual interest in it and got it when it was on sale six years ago. <laughs> you also um, got it after it was finished. <laughs> yes, correct. I, I, th- I think I when I heard it was going to be split, I think... Maybe I don't remember exactly my thoughts at the time, but I, I did think, you know what? Maybe I'll wait until it's finished before I pick it up. And uh, and the, I'm sure the the price and timing were both right in the summer of 2016. So uh, that's when I've had it. I uh, did not touch it until now. But even though I, even though I, it, you know, it, it just became a member of my permanent Steam backlog that I know meant is true for many people. Uh, like people will impulse buy on Steam or buy things in sales, but definitely cannot play faster than they buy. I, I know I'm not alone in that in that uh, strategy, if you no, can call it that. No, not at all. Yeah, but uh, but yeah, Broken Age was right in there, and uh, this was the perfect opportunity to play it. But we've thought about doing Broken Age for the podcast a couple times. It's pop. It's been on our, on our ideas board for quite a while. But this was exactly the right time for it, and I'm glad I did because it really is a. Uh, I, I think it's be- it's beautiful. It's a beautiful game, both in its writing and its visuals. Like it's very. It's just. It, it, it's cozy in a way like uh, like, like the, the dialogue and uh and and the and the feelings that the game instills and the voice performances are like, like i don't think it's ever really i don't know how to describe this it, it, it just made me like nostalgia for a time i never experienced yeah that's a good way of describing it yeah so even though i i don't have uh, the adventure game pedigree of either of you. Uh, I, I think this game really harkens to a specific time and place, and it's quite wonderful. Great. I'm not sure if that ask, asks your question exactly. But... I mean, yeah, just kind of <laughs> like expectations, context going into it. Yeah. Right. I, I expected an adventure game uh, with, you know, of a certain stripe, and that's exactly what this is. Perfect. But I, I, I think that the changes from a game like Grim Fandango or, Mul- or Monkey Island is more with things like interface and visual choices and not really gameplay or logic or writing. And we'll go into all that a little bit more as we like talk about the game itself. Um, So next I wanted to, like we talked a little bit about the Kickstarter. So why don't we kind of finish that discussion and talk a little bit about the setup of the game. Anything else you want to say about the development cycle of the documentary? I want to talk about the art a little bit. Absolutely. Because it's fantastic. So Let's start with the development cycle. So as we, as we briefly mentioned, uh, the game ended up being split into two parts. And that was basically a product of kind of the way the Kickstarter was formatted with Tim having to create this game from scratch and kind of figure out the scope of it 
as he went a little bit and some of the stuff they were doing with the art and time crunch and things like that it ended up being a much bigger game than they were expecting like like we said you know they were thinking of something like a step above a flash game and yeah. because of demand and all these expectations that it turned into they really wanted to make a project with a vast kind of beautiful scope so it ended up being split into two parts yeah and that is painstakingly detailed uh, in the documentary yes. uh, that there this was not a decision that they went into lightly Ooh, no uh, this was they tortured themselves over splitting it I think one of the reasons why the game's development cycle like like we were saying they they thought it was just going to be like a smaller a very small game one step above a flash game and then it turned out to be 3.3 million dollars they had all this money they had this scope that they could and they needed to essentially make enough to make the documentary worthwhile as well because that was another part of it um and i think that because they didn't go into it with any ideas they didn't go into it with any art style they went into it with literally nothing except let's make an adventure game I think a lot of the first part of the development cycle was figuring out an engine, doing some prototypes, figuring out the art style, figuring out uh, what the game was going to be about, and then Tim eventually writing the game. Mm -hmm. So a lot more time went into the uh, pre-production of the game, uh, and I think that possibly threw their their sense of time scale off completely. Oh, definitely. There was a lot of time spent on what exactly is this we're making? Yeah. Yeah, I, I have not seen the documentary, although now I definitely want to, having played uh, more Schaefer than I ever have in my entire life the past month or so. <laughs> um, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm roughly doubling my entire Schaefer oeuvre over, in late September into October. That's true. But like, this is almost an exam a positive example of feature creep. They thought they had no budget going into this, and but then they were suddenly saddled with a, uh, a a non-trivial amount of money and some level of expectations to not let those backers down. So like the scale of the game in increased beyond their first estimate. And like when that's sometimes called feature creep, usually in a negative context, like during development, people keep at uh, the developers keep adding ideas and concepts and and then suddenly they have too many ideas or are failing to execute on all of the ideas to their satisfaction. Like, like right. when, 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 when too many, too many ingredients go into the pot, that's sometimes called feature creep. But uh, I, I think that this is a tightly made game. I don't think there's much that's wasted in it. And again, I, I I've said this over and over. It's a really pretty game and a very well-written game. I, I think their increase in scale and, and uh, increase of what kind of game it was, wasn't really feature creeps as much as them just uh you know like setting a very specific ambition and then splitting it in half and extending the development cycle just to make sure they could properly execute on that ambition that's sort of the, the sense i got is that they they did pour a lot of you know resources into planning to make sure that everything was you know laid out so you didn't get anything that looked like it was unfinished and personally i think that's the one thing i really like about Tim Schafer's work and, and really like any of the LucasArts team, right? Like if that vending machine with the grog is sitting there, <laughs> like there's actually a reason for it later. And you get the sense a little bit from broken age too. Like I really do think they. Yeah. Chekhov laid a lot of guns around these set pieces. to go yeah, off. Exactly. What, one of the things that I found, I mean, the documentary is simply remarkable, not just because it's, it's intriguing and interesting. It has a lot of interesting personalities in it, but also it gives you a look into uh, like I've, I've seen a lot of gaming documentaries from Noclip, et cetera, like 
those people and they do they do an amazing job. I've never seen one that goes quite as in-depth as this into the creative process that goes on behind the scenes uh, with any kind of game development. Like most of the stuff that uh, is in this documentary is stuff that we will never find out because like a parent company would never let them release it. Like we're seeing fights, we're seeing disagreements, we're seeing hard decisions being made. Uh, you get to see this is not a, you get to see the game development is not easy. Um, it's not sometimes it's not even it's not fun. It's incredibly stressful. You get to see crunch firsthand and what crunch does to people There's, because literally between <laughs> the beginning of the documentary and the end of documentary, some of these people look like they've aged like five years instead of two. It's crazy. And it's it's a lot of Tim like trying to find and keep useful people on his team. <laughs> Oh, or the yeah. development cycle. And yeah, it's whew. out of curiosity before we get into the art. Uh, Hillary, who was your favorite character, quote, quote unquote, character in the documentary? Oh, geez. Well, this actually segues nicely because oh, I'm trying to remember his name and I might need to look him up. But the art director. Uh, Lee. Yes, Lee Petty. Yes. Yes. Yep. <laughs> if I had to pick, like, I enjoyed his insights. I enjoyed his interactions with Tim. Mm-hmm. What about you? I loved Anna. Oh, yeah. Anna was just a, a bright ray of sunshine throughout all of this. <laughs> um, and like, I, you could tell that the project was wearing on her. And I also think that like at the beginning, her job was like putting Tim's dialogue into the game. But I mm-hmm. think that by the end of it, you could tell that a lot more was being put on her than just about anyone else. She's the kind of person who like is the backbone of the studio in my mind, like without her, everything just would have fallen apart, even though she didn't specifically have like uh, a job where she was a manager. I could see it. And she's just, uh, she just seems like a genuinely cool person. Yeah. I mean, it was a very likable group. Anyway. Oh, yeah. There was, there was no one in the group who was like, <laughs> but it was always funny when they introduced a new team member. Cause in my mind, I was like, Ooh, they're introducing a new, a new character to the game, to the, to the series. And I'm like, no, they're not introducing a new character. This is a documentary. Yeah. Just can't say enough good things about it. Yeah. And then like some people like leave, like uh, Ron Gilbert appeared briefly in like the first few episodes. And then it, like, he just leaves cause he's done working on the cave and they, they like show his empty office. And it felt like one of those, like, your favorite character has left the building <laughs> no, kind no, of thing. Ron. Yeah. Yeah. The, the foot, yeah. the footage of Ron's. Ron Gilbert stuff. Yeah. Yep. It's sad empty office. No, it's, it's an exceptional documentary. And one of the reasons like you want to talk about is the art. Yes. So a couple things about it I wanted to mention. So one of Tim's early ideas about the game is that he really liked um, an artist that he worked with, Nathan Bagel Stapley's art style. It was kind of surreal, but also had some nice kind of pastel colors. And it was a very interesting mix of styles that he had. And so one of Tim's early ideas was to kind of write the type of story that would fit well with his art style and kind of like feature his artwork. Um, so that, that also made the project a lot more interesting because they didn't have a lot of ideas or you know, concepts, characters going into it. So they had to work with a whole team of artists while still kind of making it feel like Bagel's work. So mm-hmm. it was a really interesting collaborative effort. I think Tim got a lot of story ideas from like early art jams early on. And you had like quite a few different distinctive artistic styles going into this that had to blend. So the fact that they got the visuals they did out of that is just amazing. And the cool, the thing I found really cool about it is sometimes the art styles uh, didn't work. They didn't blend. They didn't 
give what uh, they needed. Like um, one of uh, Tim Schafer's longest longtime collaborators, uh, Peter Chan, who uh, was responsible for like Monkey Island 2 and Day of the Tentacle and Full Throttle and Grim Fandango. Like they did an entire episode where they delved into his creative process and they went to his studio. And I thought that was one of my favorite episodes of the series actually. But like in the end, his stuff didn't quite fit with what they were doing. And it was, it was interesting because like he was just one of those people who kind of was in it and then who left again. Yeah. He finished, he kind of made some contributions to the artwork. And then when that was done, he left. Yeah. And I mean, Bagel's uh, contribution is, is obvious. Like it was his, at the the very beginning, like it wasn't Shay, but it kind of looked like Shay. It was like a lumberjack, not quite the the hipster lumberjack, but it was a lumberjack character in the style of this. And that seems to be like where they really took their nod for the style of the characters. Mm-hmm. And then they built it off of that. And it's just, it it's such a fascinating look into the creative process that goes into uh, a game. Um, and because of, because of the way this was designed, uh, the, the Kickstarter was designed and they didn't have anything prior to the Kickstarter. We got a real look into the pre-production process, which we never get. And that is so cool. Mm-hmm. And that's especially true, like visuals as well as everything else. Yeah. And I think that was one of my, one of my favorites. And they ended up with a, a very beautiful, like kind of watercolory, sort of geometric to 2D, but slightly 3D sometimes going through some of the environments style it, it, it's, it's a 3d game technically because you do explore mm-hmm. like you, you you explore more than just a 2d space but uh it, it really does have a 2d picture book uh quality to it just because of the texture of the characters and yep. like the and uh and sort of the softer color palette it, it really feels like um two like children's picture books and, and i mean that with affection uh that uh that seem like they're set in unrelated worlds until that uh, faded midpoint where Shay and Vela meet each other for the first time. Yeah. And, and like the way you're talking about uh, like, like treating developers of the game as characters and, uh, and, and details like um, l- like early design choices and early versions of the protagonist of uh, broken age. Like this is the kind of thing I'm used to seeing about games like a decade later. Yeah, <laughs> like, exactly. Like like like, like, uh, like y- you see the abandoned uh, designs of uh, Mr. Zubaz and the Karate Clown in the in the first couple Street Fighter games in in like the '90s Street Fighter books, <laughs> but 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 now because this uh, documentary was made very intentionally during the development process and everyone involved wanting to make the game good and the documentary good. We get this almost unprecedented level of access, or at least this this just remarkable uh, documentary alongside a remarkable game that just, I don't know, it makes the whole project feel a little more special. I certainly think so. I think so too. And I noticed something, maybe this is just my, uh, this is my opinion, but um, when I was playing the game uh, and I was, I was playing through Shay's stuff, and I was looking at Shay and I was looking at like the way noses were done on the characters and like the shape of their heads and things like that. And it kind of occurred to me that maybe it was just because it was um, Elijah Wood uh, portraying both characters, but there was something about it that evoked over the garden wall for me. Yeah. Because it was like the character of the way that uh, if you, I, if you look at some of the art from over the garden wall, it's like, very simple cartoony, but like they have like geometric shapes for noses and things like that. They and do. Just, Their face shapes are very geometric. It just kind of looked like it's not obvious that both, 
I think both were released in the same year, actually. Uh, but they don't look alike. But for me, it was just kind of one evoked the other. One looked like kind of a, a watercolor version of uh, the other. And I thought that was neat because I know you love Over the Garden Wall. Yep. And I, I do, do too. And it's the right season for that too. Yeah. Yay. Yeah. I'm, I'm glad that we worked in Over the Garden Wall into the Halloween season. <laughs> right. It's unbelievably good. Very important. Well, that's a whole other thing, like going into the really cool voice acting mm. uh, as well. Yeah, they get some good people. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I have had a little bit of, uh, well, let's say I've done multiple double takes uh, over the voice work here because I, I mentioned before how I was playing Psychonauts 2 at the same time as this. So I'm getting a double jo- a double dose of Jack Black there. Yep. But I'm also, uh, uh, Jono, you've been doing this too. I've also been playing a lot of Mass Effect over the past uh-huh. couple of months. Mm-hmm. And we have, uh, yeah, we have Fem Shep voicing Shay's mom. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Jennifer Hale has been a pro in the industry for... Uh, for decades you will appreciate um, how she's represented yeah. in the documentary then because everyone is like so excited to meet her yeah no. she's 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 been around forever and she does a really good job here but it's a little bit it's like i was just playing a game with jennifer hale in it i was just playing a game with jack black in it which so it was just a you know a lot of <laughs> un, un, unusual <laughs> coincidences i was just watching an adorable t- cartoon miniseries with elijah wood in it mm-hmm. and i was uh Oh boy, um, the, the I'm playing uh, Fem Shep in a very different tone than Gen- than Jennifer Hale's mom in this game. Let's just say interesting. Mm-hmm. And I mean, other characters in this, uh, other characters, other actors in this include like Will Wheaton of <laughs> Star Trek: The Next Generation fame. Yeah, the he's he's Curtis the hipster lumberjack, right? He sure yes. is. <laughs> yeah, mm-hmm. and a, uh, the voice actor for Raz from Psychonauts is a minor character. He's one of the uh, he's one of the villagers in uh, in the Cloud City. Yeah, and then. And then we have Vela's voice actress, who is a relative newcomer, but I think does a fantastic, fantastic job. Like, I couldn't imagine anyone else voicing Vela. I, I, think, I think hers is the best voice performance in the whole game. Like, she's, it, it, like, it, uh, it, it, it feels like it, it becomes the character. And I think uh, Vela's level of, like, spunk without being overly energetic and, like, sarcasm and, like, cool sarcasm without ever seeming mean. Mm-hmm. uh was 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 very fun and fitting and uh uh i i think that elijah wood's performance is really good but i almost think like he was toning himself down a little bit like trying to make shay deliberately a little bored and jaded mm-hmm. uh and and uh and and uh but but not not in a bad way like elijah wood both performances are great but i thought that uh the most appealing voice performance in the game was uh Vela's. Which is really funny because there is a section of the documentary where uh, Tim Schafer and his, uh, his a casting agent, a vocal casting agent, are going through like various samples trying to find the right voice for Vela. And he's like, I, sh- I want a teenage girl. And she's like, no, you don't. You do not want a teenage girl to play this. I'll give you some examples why. And she like plays a couple of actual teenage girls who are like kind of kind of like they're like teenagers. They're just like there's a vaguely whiny quality about them and. And uh, he's like, nope, don't want that. And they found like the perfect person who evoked the qualities that of being a teenager without actually being one. I agree, though. Vela is I think Vela is the best uh, voice actor in the entire piece. I mean, there's a reason that there's what, 11 or 12 teenage main characters in Greece, but only one of the actors in Greece was actually under under 20 years old. It's like (laughs) when you say you want a teenager, you don't always want a teenager. (laughs) No, you want a 20-year-old who looks and sounds like a teenager. Exactly. Oh, jeez. 
<laughs> or in the case of Soccer Channing, a 30-year-old that's a good singer, but maybe not doesn't maybe doesn't look like a teenager. <laughs> hmm. All right. Anything else we want to say kind of about like the setup or the background of the game before we go through the plot? No, I think I'm good. Okay. All right. So part one. Uh one of the neat features of Broken Age um, that I think they employ more in the second half of the game than the first half of the game is that you have Shay and you have Vela. Bella's a teenage girl. Shay's a teenage boy. They are in very different circumstances. And at the beginning of the game, you get a lovely title screen with Shay in his spaceship environment and Vela in her kind of like pastoral, almost fairy tale environment. And you have to pick whose story you start with. So there's this whole mechanic of being able to switch back and forth between the two of them. So who did you all pick first? Uh, I can't remember who I went with the first time. This time I went with Vela. Me too. I also went with Vela first. Ah, all right. The very first time I played, I did Shay's story first, at least in the first half. I think playing through Vela's first uh, actually helps a lot with Shay's because I I felt this time I knew what was happening. I knew the I knew the big twist this time. Mm-hmm. But at the same, but I was like I could see I could put the pieces together playing Shay's game and like have a have like an idea of wait a second these creatures. The order, the, the same thing is happening when I get these creatures as it happened with Vela's uh, situation. Mm-hmm. There are little um, details. Hey, these ship windows, the shape of them looks yeah. kind of familiar. I, I, I was expecting something like that, but I'm not going to lie and say I figured it out. It's uh, <laughs> uh, we, we can say what the twist is in a moment, but I, uh, I, I figured that these two occupied the same world somehow, even though they were part of very different worlds. But I, I, I did not. I guess guess correctly and how they were connected, but uh, I'm I'm glad that they didn't try to make it too much a secret that uh, the maiden's feast is a sacrifice because the way they were like talking about how much of an honor it was, I, like at the very beginning of Bella's story, I, again this is five minutes in, I'm going, is she about to be sacrificed? Yeah, I bet she's about to be sacrificed. This this feels like Shirley Jackson's The Lottery a little bit, <laughs> a little then, too much. Yeah, yeah but but uh, but then they make it pretty clear that that is indeed what it is, and yep. but it's but it's normalized and even celebrated in the uh, in Bella's community. Yeah, I mean the the game starts with Bella up on the hill, just kind of nodding off, getting some time to herself, and her sister calls back to the house for a celebration because Vela's been selected to be part of this very special maiden's feast, which is supposed to be an honor because you're performing an important service for the community. Um, and it turns out that this important service is basically presenting yourself to a giant, what kind of looks like some sort of Cthulhu tentacle monster called a mog, um, to be seemingly eaten mm-hmm. and they this is done in somewhat cheeky style uh the town that vela's from is called sugar bunting where they are bakers uh but if you talk to vela's surly yet wonderful grandpa um you find out it used to be called steel bunting and he's kind of the one wondering like why don't we fight the mogs um but anyway so they their maiden's feast is fancy cakes everyone's dress is a fancy cake they're standing there in fancy cake dresses waiting to be sacrificed. And event- eventually uh, you go to other villages uh, adjacent to Vela's and in the, in the sky village where they all tend to birds, the, um, the maidens for the maiden feast are dressed in, in bird costumes or, or, or very feathered costumes. And in the seaside town, they're all in uh, where they're clearly mostly fishermen or perhaps sand architects. <laughs> yep. they, 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 they dress in elaborate fish costumes. So like th- there is, 
centuries of tradition of these maidens feasts every 14 years uh, with with multiple girls from every village uh, being given to a Mog Chathra monster. Right. You can tell that it's been going on for a while. The officiator in Vela's town, you know, says like this is a proud tradition and she remembers it from when she was young and you can tell she's supposed to be quite old. <laughs> so, you know, generations of this happening. So very interesting. And I think kind of vexing to Vela, like why hasn't anyone ever tried to fight the Mogs? And she asks this and no one really answers. So what ends up happening at the Maiden Feast is you get like a cool little series of kind of like dialogue and a few inventory object puzzles. You have to kind of trade items between the girls to get yourself out of your cake and incapacitate Mog Chothra. Uh, and that's how you end up in Mariloft. You take a fall and then one of the Mariloft birds, I think, grabs you. So you end up in the Cloud Village, mm-hmm. which is, what do you think of the... Uh, the management in Mariloft. Uh, the cult, or not the cult, the yeah. religion, philosophy, <laughs> the philosophy. Yeah, Jack Black's great in that. Um, and if every, I mean, it's full of characters and like it's there's some some of the people living in this village are like full in on this cult mentality of, of, of weightlessness and lightness. Lightness. Uh, lightness in the clouds. Um, and others are somewhat more uh, skeptical and cynical about it all. Uh, understandably so, we find out later. And some of them are really cool foils to each other. Like, I, I like even the side characters in this game. Like, Walter, um, by the way, Harmony Lightbeard is the leader of this area, and he has a habit of shortening people's names because uh, that makes them lighter. Uh, <laughs> so Walter's kind of just like all in on this cult, doesn't see a problem with it, kind of believes it, despite the fact that his wife and other members of his family are less sure. Um, and then you have Fathur, uh, Harmony Lightbeard's guard, who's just kind of adorably devoted. <laughs> yeah, he's the, uh, ironically, he's uh, Harmony's uh, heavy. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and, and uh, Harmony Lightbeard does lead a cult of of lightness in the in the cloud village, but uh, they still have to give up their maidens to Mag Chathra. And there's a girl in the village, Twyla, who uh, was one of the maidens presented for Mog Chathra, but wasn't chosen, and she and she feels like a failure as a result. But and and when uh when Vela is talking to Twyla for the first time, Vela is like encouraging. It's like, yeah, we that means we survived. That means we can fight. And Twyla's like, well, yeah, but I mean, I was supposed to get eaten, and uh, people have been telling me for years that it's such an honor to. Is there something wrong with me? Yeah, ex- exactly. <laughs> it was it was heartbreaking. I love Twyla. <laughs> I loved. I I felt for Twyla. I really did, <laughs> and she has such a cool outfit. I want the best for Twyla. Yep, and I think Vela does too. <laughs> and there are other there are other characters in here like uh, Gus, who does not want to lose a letter of his name because he's afraid that people will start referring to him as Gas. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and then the the unsung hero, I think, uh, of this game, Carol or Carl. Yep, <laughs> she's the wife. Uh, she spends most of her time making cloud shoes. Which you do need to solve some of the puzzles and make sure you don't sink through the clouds in, in Mariloft. Yeah. The the cloud shoes, which are basically you know snowshoes but for clouds, uh, they show up in like every part of the game. Yeah, <laughs> they, they are a crucial puzzle element. They really are. Um, and then later on, she helped. Well, she helped solve a different set of puzzles later on in the game. We'll mm-hmm. get to that. Which is uh, consistently helpful. The thing I love about uh, Tim Schafer's writing is, like we were talking about Chekhov's gun, like he he sets things up beautifully, um, and there are little there are little hints in the dialogue. This game is so dialogue heavy. Like 
you could if you are the kind of player who doesn't want to talk and doesn't want to exhaust dialogue trees you're not going to be able to complete all the puzzles because in some cases you're not going to be able to get all of the items required to complete the puzzles you're not going to uh, get items that are necessary to move forward. Right. You need to be able to, you need to listen to everything. So in this case, like Harmony is as high above uh, Mariloft as Mariloft is above the ground. So to get to him, you have to climb a massive ladder up and you, and to you, all, your goal here is to try to get to the ground. So just through listening to dialogue cues, you're like, all right, so there's this ladder that's as high up, so there's there's that's the distance of Merrillaw to the ground. I have to get this ladder down somehow. And that's the cue. That's all it is is you knowing that it's an equal distance, and yep. that's supposed to cue you to so that you know, okay, yeah, and everything needs to come down. Yeah, this every- ladder is my way down. So uh, that that and uh, when you l- figure out his obsession with lightness, and the, and if you check the the first golden egg you find in your inventory, they they comment on how it's both an offering and it's also quite a heavy item that they. The game is telling you to use those golden eggs to weigh down the ladder. But uh, if you don't check your inventory or exhaust a lot of dialogue trees, there's no way of knowing that. And I think, you know, we mentioned a little bit of this game kind of being in the like old school adventure game puzzle solving category. And I think I think that's a part of it. Um, We'll get into how like the puzzle solving changes um, uh, between the acts. Mm-hmm. Yep. <laughs> One of the things is that <laughs> we're saying all this about like dialogue trees and cues, but this is allegedly the easy half. <laughs> it is the easy half. Yeah. I, I wasn't, I never got stuck in this first half of the nope. game. I thought most of the puzzles were fairly straightforward, partially because of the interface. Whereas uh, this is, I mean, they talk about this in the documentary. This is going to be an evolution of the adventure game. They didn't want to go backwards. They didn't want to end, go backwards to uh, verbs or even an, even uh, a verb coin. Like they were going for a single cursor that does everything. Um, so it's not like you have to figure out. It's not, it's not a grammar simulator. You don't need to figure out which verb works with which item. Which Do I need to use this item. or push it? Yeah, no. Exactly. No, it was just like if something you click on something, it tells you what it is. You use item on this by dropping and dragging it. And it was very, very streamlined. Yeah. It, it, every button is basically or every click is basically interact. And mm-hmm. it, it's a it's a very simple interface that was not complicated for me to use at all. Well, for the sake of time, let's keep moving on with the plot. So you figure out how to get Harmony's ladder down uh, and you kind of crash into Curtis the Lumberjack's house, which brings us to the next area, which is his house and Shellmound, the sea town. So Vela navigates that. Um, she makes a talking tree extremely sick because she needs the sap to solve some puzzles. Talking tree is my favorite character in the game, I think. <laughs> oh my gosh. I, I, I will tell you, I have two favorite characters, but they don't show up until uh, until Shay's part, so we'll, we'll get to them soon. But okay. yeah, the, the talking tree that, that vomits sap and loves corny tree jokes is pretty good. And hates murderous humans, especially the lumberjack. Yeah, he's a, a, a tree rights advocate. Yeah, but uh, but you, you need to collect some sap and uh, and uh, like... Uh, basically help build a sand castle and, to get uh, shell mound ready for their maiden's feast. So Vela's idea at this point yeah. is to intercept Mog Tothra and beat him at shell mound. Uh, and she also discovers the dead eye pyramid and the dead eye druids, um, which when you solve their riddle, you can enter the dead eye pyramid and you find a spaceman essentially kind of guy who 
helps you create a weapon to take down Mog Tothra. So once you get Shalman ready for their Maiden's Feast, which includes the sap from the tree to build sandcastles, to reinforce them, and getting some perfume that's made from some kind of gross, like, fish chum. Yeah, you need to... <laughs> this is a seaside town, so their idea of attracting a monster, you need to vaguely smell a fish. Yep. And and the girls go on about, like, their, you know, traditional generations-old, like, recipes of essentially, like, fish scent. As a man who grew up in Nova Scotia, I can confirm that this is indeed true, yes. <laughs> Every family has a, a, a monster attracting recipe that is mostly fish. It's it's tradition. There you go. See, I don't think Colorado was quite Maryloft. Although it is the, the birthplace of all the birds in Terningma. Hmm. So, Solosi, would that mean you're from uh, sugar bunting? Uh, oh, I don't know. Um, I, I mean, I, I'm from... I'm from from the DC area, so it's it's a it's a little bit Chesapeake Harbor town, but a lot of uh, of contractors and bureaucrats. So, I, I I feel like I'm I I feel like I'm more the plague dam than than sugar bunting. <laughs> oh no! <laughs> <laughs> oh. And we'll get more to that shortly. So yes, there's an exciting finale to Act One where the Dead Eye God uh, manages to repurpose some parts from his spaceship to make a weapon to incapacitate Mog Chathra. Vela distracts Mog Chathra and they fight him off. He crashes to the ground and then, who wants to say the big twist? Oh, we are not the big twist yet because then as soon as it crashes to the ground, we switch over to uh, Shay. Oh yeah, Shay. Oh shoot, yeah. No, we have to talk about Shay in the first half. No, you. Shay wakes up, which yeah. I actually think is kind of a cool... Uh, misdirect because the way that is designed i think it's designed both ways um the last thing that happens in either one of the stories in act one immediately is immediately followed by either shay or vela waking up Mm -hmm. so it if you didn't know what's going to happen it almost makes you think like that was a dream of the other character yeah because you're kind of trying to figure out okay why are we on a spaceship now like Mm -hmm. vela's world is a vaguely nonsensical fantasy world and Shays is a vaguely nonsensical sci-fi world but there's no crossover that we can see so we start looking for clues about like okay well how are these two stories connected right so you get this twist with Vela she's fighting off Mogchathra she I think she falls right yeah and then she wakes up and you're on the spaceship and you're starting his story yeah and and most of Shay's sto- uh, story is sort of communicating the repetition of his life because yep. he's extremely bored about everything going on around him. He's uh, he's fed cereal every day. He has he's his his mom sort of runs uh, his schedule during the day, and his dad runs his schedule during the night. But the, basically, his mom and dad appear to be AIs represented by a fake sun and moon. Um, and he, which are uh, really pretty, by the way. <laughs> you know, it's a, it's a beautiful a beautiful effect. But it's also like he feels like even though he's uh, I presume in his earlier mid teens everything around him is so childish. Like the, yep. the, the controls of this, of the ship are obviously just toys. Um, there's even like, a little, yeah, there's even like a little, a little baby, uh, uh airmobile ab- above him of the, of the planets and, uh, and all of the missions that he does to practice and to train to presumably, uh, for a, a, a mission that's presumably coming. Uh, they're all, uh, robots made of yarn and like storybook fairy tale areas. And the, and the missions themselves are ridiculous. Like you, you have to poke a mountain to 
make its open its mouth and stick out its tongue tongue so the train can be saved like to create a bridge yeah so there's like the train mission and, and it's clear clear that uh there are only four of these missions and shay has been doing them every day for several years so like and you get a great dialogue tree with mom and they're sort of like, well, mom is so encouraging that and but also so coddling that you like see sort of how cute and sweet it is, but also feel Shay's struggle a little bit. And you feel his increasing frustration. <laughs> yeah. And monotony of every day being the same. Yep. And that's sort of the point, which is if you're if you're not figuring out if you can't figure out a solution. Yeah, it can feel a little monotonous, but that's that's what they're trying to do at that point. Exactly. So once that commun- once that is effectively communicated, you have to figure out a way to break that monotony. Yep. And then you do, and then everything changes. Everything with the changes. arrival of oh, by the yeah, this isn't. It turns out that this is not uh, Gilbert Wolf Schaefer Wolf. This is <laughs> Gilbert Wolf Wolf Wolf. <laughs> That's true. That's right. Yeah, I would. But when I coined that term uh, back in the uh, Secret of Monkey Island episode, I was not aware of any wolves in Broken Age. <laughs> so it's Gilbert Wolf Wolf Wolf. Gilbert Triple Wolf. So what ends up happening is uh, the answer is to mess with the train mission so that the train falls off the tracks and you and your little adorable knitted yarn pals fall. And then you meet a mysterious wolf character who's been hiding out in the unseen parts of the ship named Merrick. And he tells you that it's time to put away childish things and kind of plays to Shay's, you know, desire for freedom and desire to do have an impact on the world around him. And so he sends you on these missions. He says that the galaxy's at war and you have to rescue hapless creatures. And so there are like three of these missions where you have to um, use the ship's navigation system, which is the space weaver and the nav scarf um, to go to certain locations, kind of pick up these individuals without mom and dad finding out essentially. So that's the next part of his story. But then this becomes like increasingly difficult. Uh, and the last time you do it, I think the ship is kind of getting wise to you a little bit. So you have to do several things to be able to like use the ship's boom arm effectively. You have to dampen the ship's core so you can lower the shields manually because Merrick can't like hack the computer system as effectively as he could before. Yeah, and and and, and Merrick convincing Shay to do all these tasks is so exciting and different from uh, from Shay's usual routine that he really goes into them with a plum. Yep. But but basically, it's it's doing uh, several things around the ship without mom or dad noticing, and then it, resulting in playing this mini game where you, where you rescue. Uh, uh, like little digital creatures. In, it's like in a digital interface. claw game. Uh, I, I've played uh, eight or nine Yakuza games, or I should I should say like a dragon games over the past two years, and they were all leading to this moment. <laughs> <laughs> so those little segments were super easy for you. Oh yeah. I totally bought this too, because you quickly learn that based on the little that you've learned about Shay's mission uh, and the, the training exercises that Shay has been on, Shay has been quote unquote trained to be a hero. Like he's been told his entire life that he's a hero and that he is rescuing people and that he is, he is uh, selfless and brave. And as Shay grows up, he knows that this is just crap because these are staged missions that are not in any way dangerous and he's not actually saving anybody. And then all of a sudden for the first time, he's told that he is important, that he actually is a hero and that he can make a difference. 
So I, I really felt for Shay here. I completely bought his enthusiasm and drive to save these little creatures. It is a really kind of nice narrative setup. Like the idea that, so the little bit of background that you learn about say, Shay's ship, the Bassa Nostra, is that it is a seeding ship, essentially. Like he's been fed the story about how his world is dying and how he and his AI-ish parents uh, their mission is to just kind of continue to live. And so they're looking for somewhere, a suitable place for him to live, essentially. But this is not true. Yeah, I, I think it's called, I mean, it, it's called uh, Operation Dandelion yep. or Mission Dandelion. I think it's because of the way dandelions spread out their seeds by having them, you know, uh, like uh, catch on the wind and float yes. uh, to, to find fertile ground. But that's not the case at all. Um, nope. When when the last creature you try to rescue is not as cooperative uh, the ship crashes, and if you've completed Vela's story at this time, like it goes back to Vela and the and the ship opening, and it's Shay and Vela facing each other because uh, like the creatures were the maidens, the ship is Magchatra, and neither Shay, uh, but Shay didn't know a thing about Vela or her people, and Vela didn't wasn't even aware that Magchatra was a ship and not a monster. And in this shocking moment, Vela tries to punch him. <laughs> <laughs> understandably <laughs> and but but the punch whiffs and vela stumbles into the ship and shay stumbles out of the ship and when part two begins it's uh vela navigating shay's space and shay navigate navigating vela's space so all right i guess that means we're ready for part two a little bit can i mention something about part one? Oh yeah of course um for me something that uh something that tim schaefer did with day of the tentacle uh, which is similar to this, is he? you could switch between characters freely. But in Day of the Tentacle, uh, you would have to get items as one character and transfer them to the other. And so there was a lot of crossover between the two characters. Mm -hmm. In this game, part one anyway, there is no crossover between the characters. You, yep. you complete one, then you complete the other. But I found, not this time because I remembered the puzzle solutions, but the first time I found being able to switch characters... Uh, was very helpful because it's a it's an adventure game. You get stuck, and it, sometimes it can feel like you're hitting your head off of a, a talkative tree. So being able to switch over to another character and maybe solve some completely unrelated puzzles on the other side was uh, a big relief, and it gave me a chance to give me a break from uh, the frustration. Until I get stuck on that side, then I could switch back over to the other and give that another try. So I thought this uh, switching back and forth, it was useful but it was it felt very disconnected as compared to some other uh, adventure games yep. which i feel they rectified in the second half yeah that's absolutely true like it it does kind of have some some use just if you have some burnout on one story versus the other or if you are stuck or if you get sick of Mariloft. I mean, uh, uh, my personal way of interpreting that is that's why I almost always play more than one game, video game at a time. Like if I, 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 I always keep two or three games in rotation instead of focusing at one at a time because if I get bored or stuck in one, switching can really re-energize me. Uh, and but I think that's a deliberate choice. In the first half of Broken Age, they are hiding the fact that these worlds are connected. And yeah. it's a and it, it's a plot twist when the, there's that moment of truth when the door on on the ship opens. But in the second half, they're emphasizing the connections, and you have to find clues in in one setting to solve puzzles in the other setting, unless mm -hmm. you brute force it or look up a solution, which happened to me at least once. 
because there is a bit of a difficulty spike in the second yeah. half of the game. Yeah. And and I think it's maybe a little harder if you do as I did and go with Vela's story first. Yes. Because because there there are, there's more clues in Shay's route to help Vela than the other way around, I found. Mm. I started with Shay's in the second half. I don't know if maybe like vaguely remembered that <laughs> from the last time I played the game. I would have had I would have had an easier time in the second half if I did a little bit more frequent switching. But I uh I, I played as much of Vela's route as I could before switching to Shay, and that was not the best decision. I think it's I, again, I don't think it's a bad thing. Uh, in terms of the structure, I do think that Act One having no crossover between the characters genuinely does train the player, if they're not familiar with adventure games, to not realize that there is there can be crossovers of uh, information, if not items, in the second half of the game, um, which can lead, as I understand it, I did some, I, I looked some things up. It can lead to a lot of players feeling extremely stuck because the information that they need is in the other character's uh, route. Um, And they don't think there is any crossover, but there is, there absolutely is, there has to be. And that's certainly in the finale, where the finale is is both characters at the same time, almost. Yeah, that's that's an example. And if you kind of have some context, or definitely it sounds like if you play Day of the Tentacle, you kind of have a cue or like, some idea that maybe they're able to trade items or maybe there's some information about this. Mm. I think that from a story game, uh, from a, an immersion uh, perspective, it does bother me very slightly that to solve certain puzzles, uh, Shay and Vela have to ha- have to have information that is literally impossible for them to know. No, or communicate with one another. Yeah. Or yeah. communicate with one another. That bothered me a little bit. It didn't upset me, but I was like, okay, yeah, but there's there's literally no way for Shay to know how to rewire uh, the, uh, oh, what is it? The hexapel? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, without having the information that's on the, the, the photo of the whiteboard. Uh, in the background in Vela's route, like there's no way possible. There's no way for Vela to know what the uh, coordinates are uh, if you don't if you don't uh, put the notes together, so to speak. Yeah, but bef- but before you can go into the control room, you have to pass Mom's test to because like the, part of it is that like like uh, Vela has to convince Mom that that uh, that she's she is Shane. Shit. Yeah, the cheese shade to get into the into the door, and one of the questions is, "What was the name of uh, of Shay's old pet snake, or I'm um, like old uh, stuffed snake toy?" And you, there's no way you can know that unless you uh, you you've done the sequence with Shay where he meets a snake and calls it Mister Huggles, or is it Huggies? Mister Huggy. Yeah, Mister Huggy. That's <laughs> it. Huggy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So like, uh, like there is. And and uh, I didn't know that I was doing Vela's route first, so I uh, guessed wrong twice before guessing the right one, and I, I just kept repeating. <laughs> I just kept repeating the questionnaire oh, no. from mm-hmm. Mom until I got the right answers because I I got one of the right answers from looking at things in the trophy room, yep. but I uh, but I I didn't know Mister Huggy, so I had to I had to guess a couple times. But but it, like if you switch frequently and explore thoroughly, the clues are there, but they're not very clear. And I, I think this is where adventure game logic bites you in the ass a little bit. I, I've said I've said the words adventure game logic like f- fifteen times every episode this month, but yep. it, it's a very specific way of of your brain of brain operation where they make sense when it's explained to you, 
but is a little confusing in the moment and right. sometimes and sometimes difficult to find until you rub every object you have against every other object you have. Exactly. And if you play but, enough adventure <laughs> games, you kind of train yourself to like yes. maybe be able to hone in on the important details that will come mm-hmm. up. It, it's like if you you don't really understand Zelda instincts, like like go to every unexplored room and uh and 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 try to just search objects for pushable w- blocks or dings in the wall like like you don't understand all of those zelda strategies until you've played a couple zelda games and you developed instincts about video games and rpgs and and all of these things that make total sense if it's your fifth video game of that genre but none if you're a newcomer and adventure game has their own language and logic that i think is learned and not obvious which is Mm -hmm. my way of explaining that i had to use a guide a lot (laughs) in part two in both in both the shane i keep calling him shane that's my that's my bad in both the shay in the shay route and the vela route uh and there was a i accidentally called vela vala like 20 times because there's a in a in a in an online game i used to play one of the main characters was named vala so i i used I, I, I accidentally, maybe I've accidentally called her Vala today. I don't but, think you did. Oh, I don't think you have either. Oh, well, that's lucky. But uh, basically, Vala's uh, thrust for her part is she. You did it there. Oh, whoops. <laughs> yeah. Okay. I knew. I knew it was coming. Yeah. Yeah. Vela's goal is to get into the control room and then uh, find a way to uh to to like plant an explosive outside the ship and then and then get the hell out of there while Shay is searching around um the uh the the last two villages of uh of Vela's uh Vela's route from part 1 to and find the equipment that Alex needs to make repairs to his ship which is a, a buried Mog Chathra we know now yes. uh, an earlier model yeah an, an earlier model cuz he uh Alex went into cryo sleep we we already mentioned all that yeah uh and and so basically they both have multiple tasks that can be done in a couple different orders but they get real weird and hyper specific in how to accomplish them <sighs> stupid hexapal and, okay i i i really appreciated the moment like just really quickly when um shay and shay's dad oh yeah another important thing about shay's route is that he gets to meet and interact with his dad in a in a face to face way Who's not an AI? He's not an AI, and and uh, and and well, similar for Vela. Like you discover yeah. that Shay's mom is in fact a human woman and not an AI in the control mm-hmm. room, which is in the first half, is the room where you know her son form appears on the door and says, "Oh, you can't come in here. I'm making a surprise for you." Yeah, it turns out that Shay has not seen his parents for probably probably a couple of years, enough time that he forgot they're real people. <sighs> Yeah, there's something like really messed up and and lonely about the whole arrangement. Yep, and and you, you don't learn it until towards the end of the game in Vela's route, where she uh, basically uh, interview. She overhears a discussion between Merrick and Merrick's boss, and then interrogates Merrick's boss directly over a computer console. But it it, it looks like that uh, that that low rune the area that uh the the metropolis that uh shay is from has two races of people like like the thrush and normal humans and and the thrush capture young women from the badlands or everywhere outside the plague lands yeah the the playgrounds or the or the badlands everywhere outside lorun uh to get you know healthy human dna to contribute to their genome to make their to make the thrush uh bloodline as pure as possible 
and they look like bizarre aliens. And then, and you discover that Merrick was a thrush in disguise and the granny lady in, in, uh, in Vela's home village was a thrush in in disguise. disguise. Yep. She's working the, the, you know, Plaguelands angle of it and staying in sugar bunting and encouraging this tradition of the maiden's feast. Yeah, no, basically embedded, embedding herself in these villages to, to make the maiden's feast a celebrated tradition. But it's all just a, a cover up for, a weird eugenics plot. Oh, I never liked her from like the very beginning of Vela's story, but that was just like insidious. Oh. I, I thought that maybe they were uh, being captured to be, to be married into a society or, or, or uh, thrown into servitude or something. But the answer was actually worse than my guess. Harvest them. And Vela responds uh, as you would expect, which is with absolute disgust. Mm-hmm. Just, and I, I, I should mention my, my favorite character uh, makes their appearance um, uh, at the end of Shay's part one and then at the beginning of Vela's part two. Uh, Dutch the knife. Oh, a, gosh. Uh, hu- like the, 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 the knife, the, the AI knife, fork, and spoon in Shay's kitchen are all have their own personalities and rivalries and everything. And the knife is a homicidal maniac who is just a delight. She drops him uh, at the end of his part one. And I think his response is, I'm free, free to cleave the imminent void of the universe. As he like, yeah, then, and, away. And, then, and then like uh, Dutch, the knife dives on Vela. She dodges him and picks him up. And he, and Dutch fully believes that the ship is being destroyed is due to his own attempts at cleaving space in two. It's uh, it's, <laughs> It's it's very funny and quirky, and I, I I love all the silly robots in this game, like the the cleaning robot that you have to babysit through part of Vela's part Aww, two, she's and so the sweet. and the yeah and and Hexapal and Hexagal, even though wiring them is frustrating, I I just love oh, their they're so cute. I, I yep. love how cute they are. Uh, uh, and uh, and my second favorite character of the game is uh is Gary the grabbing robot. <laughs> grabbing Gary. Mm-hmm. Grabbing Gary is excellent. Is an excellent zero dialogue character. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. Gary, no. <laughs> no. Even does the thumbs up like like Arnold Schwarzenegger in Terminator Two. He does, and and you bet. Like when Shay has the choice of like who to be upset about at the beginning of his part two, I chose Gary. I mean, <laughs> yeah, it's this game is so is so quirky and so specific that <laughs> it's, it's it's endearing me to silent robots and and a, and a very talkative knife. It really comes together, and it's even more impressive when you consider that. Uh, Tim Schafer had not written part two when part one was released. He was working on it, but it was not written. And that's that's kind of scary because when you're writing a work that is eventually going to be one piece, like, yeah, it was released in two episodes at the time, but at once part two got released, it was going to be a single game. Right. Um, and that means that he wrote the first half of the game. And once that was out there, he couldn't change anything. He was locked in at that point to the choices that he made. Uh, narratively, character-wise, like everything was set. So everything that he did in the second half needed to work around that. And that constraint may have actually created a little bit more creativity from him. But still, that's got to be scary for a writer. Yeah. And then like, I think that when it all comes together, because everyone's been waiting for this to come together, where it's like Shay and uh, Vela both need to work together even if they're not together, they need to work together in order to save the day. So like the final location, once uh, both Mogs are at the plague dam and yeah. they're like ramming into each other. Oh yeah. So uh, just to kind of like quickly catch up and explain. So what yep. happens is one of Vela's first actions in the spaceship, actually um, you find out that 
Mog Chothra is heading back to the plague dam. And so Shay's whole reason he's investigating the surrounding areas is to get Alex's ship up and running so that he can follow the Basa Nostra and find his mom because his mom is with Vela. Yeah, yeah. Shay's goal is to return to Lorun and rescue his mom, while Vela's goal is to escape with Shay's mom from Lorul. I remember Lorun. Lorul. Yeah, Laruna. Yeah, Laruna. Mm-hmm. I think it's Laruna. It's Laruna. Yep. I, I, I've been saying it wrong the whole time. Yeah, Lorul is the opposite of Hyrule <laughs> from the, from the Legend of Zelda: Link Between Worlds. Um, I'm, I'm just, I'm just terrible with names. I've, I, I've gotten worse with every new podcast, it's okay. but, but the, uh, but yeah, because their, uh, their goals are opposite trajectories. When you solve the first, let's say three quarters of Shay's part one, Shay's part two and Vela's part two, the two ships crash into each other. And the grand finale is, is like rescuing everyone on both ships and getting out of there before uh, before everyone's destroyed, which is raises the stakes considerably. It also makes the wiring puzzles at the end of the game all the more annoying. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because uh, it's I, I'm it, it, like there there's two wiring configurations: one that makes the little hexapal and hexagal swing their arms, and one that makes them raise their arms. And you have to discover what each code is. And have and have one hexapal raise their arms to play a harp, and while the other hexapal needs to or hexagal needs to swing their arms for a flashlight, and then once you discover the configuration of each wiring, you need to have them switch. So the uh, the sw- the flashlight swing swinging one is raising their arms to tickle the the <laughs> the, the weaver robot that programs the star charts. <laughs> Space and the, Yeah, and and the uh, and then the the hexapal on Shay's side needs to change from 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 raising their arms and swinging their arms so they can switch from playing a harp to playing a drum to distract Alex. So you can do the, the final move that's required to, uh, to, to beat the game. It's, it's, <sighs> you need to get the adults out of the way. Yeah. The, the wiring puzzle is a little hard, especially since it's not uh hard coded into the game. Um, the, the swinging, yep. the swing pattern and the raise arms pattern is randomly determined at the beginning of the game and you have to solve it for your and figure, find out what it is for yourself. And anyone familiar with the genre, <clears throat> we ran into this uh, with Monkey Island even, the safe code. That's right, yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's not hard-coded. It changes every time. I think the last time I ran into this playing a game uh, was Riven. Actually, there's like a number sequence that like the way the numbers work and the symbols for the numbers stays consistent, but the specific four digit code changes every, every playthrough. Uh, the last time I ran into this was uh, outside of secret of monkey Island was when I played AI, the Somnium files Nirvana initiative over the summer, because uh. there's a, there's a special code you get as a secret in the epilogue. And if you take that code, go to an earlier part of the game and enter it, you get the, that's how you unlock the secret ending in post game. Mm. but it, but it's uh but it's randomly determined and you can't just uh you can't just use a uh a, a hard a hard coded number mm-hmm. my code had uh had 747 in it so it means like oh i got the airplane code hooray <laughs> i was totally fine with uh i was totally fine with the idea of rewiring and like the the general concept i just felt that it was once you figured it out, you could always figure it out, but it was still time consuming and just a pain in the butt to constantly be switching back and forth. Yep. It was not a very user friendly puzzle. Yeah, because each robot has their six nodes in different positions. 
and you have to and there's no way to know what like each node has an has a symbol associated with it so you have to do the uh, do the wiring plug the robot into the charging machine it'll show you what uh, what wirings correspond to what nodes mm -hmm. and so it's basically just you have to use some substitution pictography uh maybe taking notes would help but there's nothing on the robots themselves that uh tells you that tells you what to do yeah. except that uh oh shoot uh I think it's Vela's robot does have um, one of the codes like in the robot because of be because of the pattern of explosions on its back when it was damaged. Hmm. It's how you find out one of them. Uh, but it, but it's 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 complicated and uh, and it requires a lot of like scene switching and some annoying inventory uh, management. But I, I mean, I figured it out. Yeah, I just figure I feel like there could have been an easier way. Like once you figure out the puzzle, there could have been a way just to switch the modes for the various robots without having to do the puzzle again. Or even just like after you solve it once, it just it, it, it the, the, the node symbols appear on the robot. That would have helped hugely. Yeah, and you could just switch it back and forth mm -hmm. that way. It would have because you've already solved it at that point. It just kind of becomes a, a a pain. That's one of the tricky things about a lot of older adventure games is some of the puzzles did have a ton of repetition. Yeah, but their mission statement was they didn't want this to be like old adventure games. They wanted this to be exactly. modern interface, exactly moving forward. And they and in many ways they is, do that. But this is oh, in very many ways they do that. Just yeah. not this way. And I think in some old adventure games, you're really burdened with inventory items that uh, that 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 are useless or red herrings that uh, that maybe stick around too long. But there's no wasted space at all in Broken Age. Mm -hmm. Like every item in your inventory will be used later until the final couple puzzles where where you know each character maybe has two or three items with with two of them being robots <laughs> yeah. so it, it's uh like I, I i towards the end of secret of monkey island like you had i had to go to like a an extra fifth and sixth line of items and and, and i'm thinking to myself the whole time it's like oh man which of these do i need to remember and which one of these are going to be useless but in, in in broken age there was no wasted inventory space I, I never I never felt like I was overwhelmed by them throwing too much at, at once because the goals were always clear and the play space was always clear. But the logic of of like when the swinging robot had to become a tickling robot and the and the weaver robot it would be tickled if you put the robot down like that was not clear. I needed some I needed some guidance there. Yeah. But, <laughs> but but in, in, in how the in the bones and engine of how the game moved. Uh, I thought was really, really smartly designed. I think so too. I think it was a remarkably effective adventure game and yeah. with some great characters. And I mean, the resolution at the end of the game uh, was, uh, I thought somewhat satisfying actually. Oh, it's adorable. Like I, like Shay, like reunites with his human parents. Um, Vela reunites with her family and the, and the family is, is glad that she survived and not, and not upset about the sacrifice oh stuff. Oh my gosh. And they build up to that so beautifully. Like, I'm, mm -hmm. I'm glad I have an in to talk about this. So in Shay's second half, you meet every single member of Vela's family looking for her and they're all kind of like reacting to her absence in different ways and... And my homegirl Twyla uh, helps him uh, build a radiation suit. Yeah, I, I was, yeah, you go, girl. I, I, I am rooting for Twyla. I <laughs> yeah. really am. And so is Vela's mom, and you get a really sweet scene with Vela's mom. Obviously, also, you know, feeling for Twyla and like trying to give her advice. And then, depending on your responses, Shay can be a little bit nicer or a little less nice to her. 
Look, <laughs> as a 36 year old man, I know that it's a little bit hard to make friends when you're when you're not in your 20s anymore. So seeing like these adults trying to take care of their kids and then becoming friends in adorable post credit sweet scenes, I, yeah. I just I just loved every second of it. It was it was a, a very wholesome set of uh, ending scenes with you know just just families supporting each other. You love to see it. Yeah. And satisfying narrative development with the, you know, Plagueland um, denizens. Like Vela's mom has a really sweet moment where she's like, she sums everything up. Basically, she says, you know, I can't believe we just we went along with this tradition. This has been going on for so long and no one like she, she's it's kind of dawning on her. Like, why didn't anyone try to stop it? And and she finally just goes, I wish Fella were here so I could tell her how proud I am of her. And it's just like, mm-hmm. oh. oh. And that's another example of the acting being right on point for yep. the entire game. Yeah, no, the, the the writing and the voice performances, I never got tired of any of them. I, I We mentioned that you have to exhaust every line of dialogue and uh, with certain characters to, to get to the next <laughs> puzzle point. I, yeah, I never Tim Schafer is t- going to make damn sure that you hear his dialogue. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, mean, I, 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 never, I never got tired of it though. It's like, it, it's like, this is good writing and good voice performances. And I, and I think it's a, and even though the game has, you know, weird parts to it, it, it all felt very earnest. Um, I, uh, I, I, I really liked the, uh, I mean, I mean, I mean, adventure games, I think need to have good dialogue and good writing to really succeed. And this absolutely succeeds. Mm-hmm. And I think that you, I think reutilizing uh, all of the settings from the first act, but recontextualizing them and the characters that we met in the last uh, act was very, very smart. Some people, as I understand, complained about that, but I thought that was uh, terrific. Yeah, uh, I thought I thought it was clever. It's it's. I mean, they they use. Uh, yeah, you're exploring everything in a different context and different characters, and it's a uh, and but the story still moves, and the I believe that the stakes of the of part two are are very clear and very and higher than part one. Um, I, I understand being frustrated that uh, with part one and part two being uh, being separate releases. I mean, I mean, we lived that a little bit uh, with the Wolf Among Us last week. Like, mm-hmm. like there, there there's something frustrating about not being able to play the game at your own pace. But uh, I, I, as as you know, as storytelling goes, I thought that switching settings was really cool. Narratively, I, th- I thought it made sense, and it 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 played to the team's strengths. I think, and it ended on a cliffhanger, which was good. I mean, a lot of good, a lot of weight. The weight is always uh, excruciating, but the resolution is nice when you get a good cliffhanger. Mm-hmm. When you get a when you get a Vela stuck in the in the mog or. Riker saying Mr. Worf fire like that. It really does set you up. And it, it, I like it. The problem of course is, and they explore this in the documentary, which I think was hysterically funny. It was, it's not the early days of the internet, but it is the earliest days of internet culture as we currently know it. So many of the choices they make like separating the game or uh, there's a whole thing with review embargoes. Um, they fully expected the internet to understand and be understanding of the situation that they were in, and 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 the internet is uh, no. not. <laughs> the internet is furious at them on regular intervals, and they're always caught off guard. And in retrospect, th- through today's lens, you're looking at what they're doing, and they're having these conversations where they're like, "No, I think it's going to be fine," and you're like, "It's not going to be fine." Like individuals are smart and understanding. And, uh, but, but the individuals comprising the entire internet are, <laughs> are stupid and angry. Oh, yes. Yeah. 
I think there are certain members of the Double Fine team who are like, I don't think this is going to be fine. I'm glad it's as like manageable as it is. Yeah, but <laughs> like this was a pioneering game for Kickstarters in more ways than one. Like I think this is one of the first times that they were confronted with the idea that when gamers actually have a stake, like a a monetary stake in a game's development, they can be a little demanding. Oof. Just yeah, a little I, bit. I, I even see that in things like Patreon communities. Like they, uh, there's a creator who who has a Patreon that I follow, and she uh, like responded to some idiot online where like the the uh, sh- she mentioned uh, get having a good Patreon month and then going out to eat or something. And mm-hmm. then, the, and then an idiot in the replies said, "Hey, uh, I'm 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 technically one of your bosses. Why aren't you making content with my money instead of in, instead of going out and going out to eat?" <laughs> it's like <laughs> the, the the sense of entitlement ramps up a little bit when uh, players or uh, you know patrons or whatever oh, or backers, boy. yeah, or yeah. like when, when they feel like they're a contributor and part of the process, the sense the sense of entitlement can go up. And I'm not. I, I couldn't believe what I was reading when I when I saw that comment, which was which was Lord. a long time a long time ago, a couple of years ago at least. And 2011 was, I think, the very beginning of. We were seeing shades of it, obviously, but like the real, uh, I'm going to say ownership, and I do not mean this in a positive sense of the oh, yeah, things the, that they like really started. Fans uh, feeling ownership of their own fandom. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, we that, that that's a whole podcast topic on its own. Yeah. yeah, and that's that's when it really started. And this game, I think, was the recipient of a lot of negative uh, internet backlash because nothing like this had ever happened before. And they're thinking, I already paid. Where's my game? Why are you only giving me half of the game? This is crap. And it's like, well... They're giving you a lot more than you paid three point three million. They're going to be putting a couple of more million of their own dollars into it. Maybe right. you should shut the hell up and just wait. And, yeah. and also, they were originally planning on something different, and now they're doing more. But and they they did. I mean, the documentary and like I was a backer. They did make several efforts to you know kind of like keep people updated and explain what was going on. You know, oh, yeah. I think they did that to the best of their ability, but was it Kotaku? What I can't remember the outlet. But the idea is they wanted to in the documentary, they wanted to give the game out to the backers first before anyone else played it and before it was reviewed and before reviewers got their hands on it. But because some reviewers at certain game sites were, were backers, backers, they got the game and they said, Well, screw the embargo. I own it. It's mine. I paid for it. So they would release uh a review way before everyone else. And because the backers didn't get, like, the final version of the game, they got, like, the one just before. Mm-hmm. It affected it, the review and the review it scores. It affected the review and review scores and things like that. So, like, and that's in their defense. Like, I, I if they paid for it, we do it. So when, like, we purchase a game, uh, when we purchase a game uh, for RPG fan, yeah, we, you know, we can review it. And they paid for the game. They got the game. They can review the game. But it was just, they didn't quite know how to handle that yet they were really right uh, figuring out their own way of how to handle this whole kickstart episodic release schedule they were pioneers of a lot of different things 
and they screwed up sometimes, and that's totally okay. And that's why I love the documentary. It's because they do not try to sugarcoat how badly they screwed up in a few places. Yeah, I, I, I realize now, or, or I, I already realized, I guess, that I am playing this game from from the best perspective possible, mm-hmm. uh, years removed from all of this controversy, and uh, in I, a single I, as a single yeah. story. Yeah, <laughs> and played it as a single connected package. And if I uh, if I'm stuck, I can. There's a, th- a thousand online guides I can check. Um, so it, and, and also there's a wonderful documentary that, uh, will provide insight on the development of the game. It's, I 100% recommend playing this game a decade after it came out. (laughs) There you go. Yeah. If if you're listening to this, don't play it in 2014. (laughs) Agreed. If you want to time travel, uh, while playing one of these adventure games, maybe the back to the future game from telltale is your, is more your speed or, uh, or day of the tentacle. I'd say Day of the Tentacle. Oh, God. Yeah, I mean, I, as a backer, like, I do remember a lot of this stuff, some of it at least, happening and following the game. But I definitely, I think it was a heavy school program education time for me, too. So I I would have approached it from a, you know, like, let, let the team make what they want to make. I trust them kind of perspective. Yep. But that was even more so just because I was busy and I knew I wasn't going to be able to, like, play the game for a while yeah but hillary you're also a reasonable understanding human <laughs> being oh geez in 2014 I, I, I was definitely not in school i was just playing disgusting amounts of diablo 3 uh and listening to <laughs> and listening to like 50 podcasts but uh but I, this I, I know that the the zeitgeist of this game is different from the current state of this game and uh, it, in a lot of ways it was a pioneer of both episodic content and uh, and crowdfunding, so it's 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 a little weird talking about that eight years later. Yeah, uh, but it's uh, but but I I mean it's mentioned in the documentary, and there's plenty of historical record. This was a weird time, but uh, even though it was made under weird times and weird circumstances, I can't argue with the final product. This is a cool, well written game that. Mm-hmm. And, and mo- almost all of my complaints about it have to do with uh, bizarro adventure game logic, which, again, I've said over and over over the course of this month. Which is fair. <laughs> yes. And it's an interesting thing because, I mean, if you look at the game today as compared to if you look at the game today compared to when it was released, adventure games aren't dead anymore. Like back in 2011, adventure games were, quote unquote, dead. Yeah, Telltale existed, but this type of adventure game was dead. The, no, yeah, the no. LucasArts model. No, um, and this was, it. Yeah, this was bringing it back. The reason why this Kickstarter was so successful is because these games weren't being made outside of Germany. No. Oh yeah, like the, the Eye of Satinov people? I was thinking the uh, adventure games were huge in uh, Europe in the uh, late 2000, or 2010s. Um, Pendulo Studios was releasing the Runaway series um, and the next best thing. And there were lots of other games, but this, you know, they were, they were classic adventure games and some of them were very, very good, but like Western studios were not making adventure games. Like, yeah, I, I was, I was mistaken. The, the game I was thinking of was uh dark eye chains of Satinov, which is a, which was developed in Germany in 2012. Hmm. So like, like, they, they, so, but, uh, but you're, but you're right. Um, adventure games were very specific, very niche and it was probably hard to get producers and publishers uh, for adventure games in North America, even though Impossible. I'm sure. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure Double Fine wanted to make games like it, but couldn't until the Kickstarter. I, I 100% believe that. Yeah, Ron Gilbert and Tim Schafer both went on the record on this topic saying, yeah, one, one reason Broken Age happened the way it did is because that's the way it could happen at the time. Like you, 
mentioned adventure games in this style to a publisher and they just would flat out refuse. Oh, they would just lie. They would laugh you out of the room if you went in and pitched a uh, pitched an adventure game. But like, it's interesting when you look at Tim Schafer's uh, other games, which uh, slow. So you've been playing lots of lately. Yeah, they're different genres, but you can genuinely see like, can can you imagine a full point and click adventure game version of Psychonauts or Brutal Legend? like with these kind of adventure game puzzles and puzzle logic, like you, I can very easily see it. Like if he had these ideas back in the LucasArts adventure game days, that these could have been classics uh, yes, using we, those mechanics. Psychonauts does have adventure game DNA in there with, uh, with, with, uh, with your different psychic powers and how you interact. Um, it would be a different kind of game and boss battles would look very different, but uh, th- there's, there is a world where Psychonauts is a great adventure game. I, to- I can totally see it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I'm glad because I don't think the Broken Age broke the dam in terms of uh, adventure games. That was happening. Partially it was happening because uh, we were just starting to move into the nostalgia phase of the late uh, 1980s, mm-hmm. early 90s. And obviously things are going to come back that were popular in those things. We've been seeing it nonstop. At 30 years after something comes out, it's popular again um, because we, you know, that that generation now has money and they want to play what they're used to. So this game hit at exactly the right time for that. Exactly. And we, we got a lot of other great, more recent games kind of following, which is great. Yeah. And from some of the original creators, Thimbleweed Park, for example. Yeah. Thimbleweed Park. We got more a recently, Monkey Island game. Return of Monkey Island. Yeah, exactly. Oh, geez. So many more. Unavowed. Unavowed's very good. I, I think now that it's uh, with digital storefronts, and crowdfunding and uh and like more tools at uh at our disposal and like more connections between uh creators and customers um like more of these games are getting made and are finding their audiences more easily so it's it's maybe not a golden age i mean i don't know enough about uh, the current like uh the, the current buffet of adventure games to say that or not but like <laughs> the environment now is a healthier one for adventure games to live in than 10 years ago oh absolutely yep and also again because the generation that is currently in their prime grew up playing 90s era adventure games um unfortunately if i had to put money on this i might be wrong and i really hope i am but five to ten years from now i think adventure games might be going through another dead period because the generation that follows uh my generation and the generation of people who grew up playing Sierra and LucasArts adventure games, early 2000s, uh, adventure games didn't exist. That's not part of their childhood. So the question is, pop culture, I think, is going to move away from it again, uh, unfortunately. That's just a guess. My feeling is uh, is that adventure games are evolving. Like the adventure games of the 2010s don't uh, like resemble but aren't the same as the ones from the 90s. But also uh, visual novels are getting more and more popular every year. Uh, like, I mean, the two thousands gave us, uh, things like Steins Gate and Ace Attorney and Danganronpa. And I notice more and more visual novels resembling classic adventure games, especially, especially, I mean, Hillary, you and I recorded some episodes on 999 and VLR. Yeah. It's such an interesting trend. Yeah. Those are visual novels with a lot of adventure game ideas in those puzzles. (laughs) Uh, and so I, I really think that Adventure games are their own thing. Visual novels are their own thing, but they are moving towards an asymptote and 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 uh, and taking inspiration from each other. So I think that there will be adventure games and visual novels, 
in the next generation, but they won't look the same as the ones we're, as the ones we've been playing this month. It, it's they're they they will exist in some form, but it will be different. And I I'm interested to try it because these are games that I like to. Uh, I, I'm not you know I haven't played as many visual novels as Nikki or Audra, and I've not played as many adventure games as as either of you two. But I'm interested to see in how both of those genres evolve because I, I really think they're on a parallel track. I hope so. Yeah, I hope so too. I've definitely seen them informing each other increasingly, for sure. Yeah. Out of the three games, what were that we played for Adventure Game Month? Uh, what were your favorite? What, what was your favorite? Oh boy, Ooh. that's a tough one. Um, I'm just—I'll say mine then. Uh, for me, it was Secret of Monkey Island. Um, <laughs> it, and I don't think that's just nostalgia. Um, I like Broken Age, but I feel like it is not what I would. It's not what I would put as top Tim Schafer. It's not one of. Tim Schafer's top games. It's good. It's solid, but it's not his best. Um, it's a very good game. Uh, uh, Wolf Among Us, really solid story um, involving characters that I really, really like. Excellent acting, but I feel the game side of it is a little bit lacking. The adventure game side of it, puzzle solving, for example. Uh, it's much more narrative adventure, a very elaborate visual novel for me. For me, uh, Secret of Monkey Island is not just a classic, but it, it is the full package <laughs> in terms of integration of uh, gameplay and uh, story and mechanics. It's it's for me the best, uh, one of the greatest adventure games ever made. So it's my favorite out of the three that we played this month. My answer to that is a little cheesy. I think my favorite was The Wolf Among Us, but it was because. I mean, I, I like Bigby more than any of the, of the other main characters here. Uh, and the story was dramatic and interesting uh, and exciting and also l- the least frustrating. Like, like I, I thought <laughs> the, 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 pu- the puzzle designs in Broken Age and Secret of Monkey Island were often brilliant. Like the insult sword fighting in Monkey Island is great. Uh, a, a lot of the I, I liked the story framework and and how the puzzles were set up in Broken Age, but it got you know, a little too weird at the end um, because it had all of the writing and, and story stuff that I love with fewer frustrations. I think I probably had the most moment to moment fun with Wolf Among Us, but all three are great. And I, I really felt like I was, I, I had a video game education this month because all three of those games were ones I had wanted to play for some time, but finally got around to, and I thought all three were worthwhile experiences. Absolutely. Great. Oh, well, Yeah, this is a really, really tough call because, as we said earlier, I think we picked three great representatives of what these games are and can be um, in their various iterations. Um, I mean, Secret of Monkey Monkey Island is it's the most classic adventure game and just a great example of what the genre can be. Um, And Wolf Among Us definitely was the most bingeable. Like, I definitely think this, hmm. just the story itself, it was dramatic. It hooked me. I, I think that might've been the one that I finished most quickly. And I think that's by design, but I think I am going to have to say that Broken Age is my favorite. And I'm fully aware that a lot of that is probably due to my own, like sentimental attachment to it. Having watched the documentary, having been a backer. And just the type of story it is, I'm a huge sucker for the type of story it is. This kind of like slightly melancholy, but also hopeful coming of age story, beautifully told with a lot of great characters. Just, yeah, I think for narrative reasons, 
I might have to go with Broken Age. I mean, I'll, I'll just say it. I think I think each of us hosted the episode that fit us best. <laughs> yep. Yep. Turns out <laughs> there's not a wrong answer to those questions because no. these are the, these are different types of adventure games with different tones and different uh, and and different concepts they were executing, but none of them are bad. Like I I, I I'm going to echo what both of you said. I think we made three really good choices uh, for the games this month. And I'm 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 repeating myself, I guess, but I uh, I'm glad I got to, I got around to all of them because they're, they're all three are worthwhile game, are worthwhile playthroughs. I'm really glad you got to play through them all too, Solosi. Yeah. Now I'm now I'm uh, now I'm uh, much more interested in uh, Wolf Among Us two and Return to Monkey Island and uh, uh, and I mean I I love we know I love Psychonauts too, so I'm probably going to finish that in the next couple of days and then be excited for whatever Double Fine has next. It's, yeah. Uh, the the only loser here really is my wallet because now I have more <laughs> now I just have more things that I want to buy. So with that said, we are gradually coming to a close with Adventure Game Month. Um, our next episode here on Retro is going to be kind of a Halloween special, sort of still in the genre uh, with the Quarry, the Third Wolf. Yep, that is the yes. our ending wolf. <laughs> Welcome the Wolf Monk here at Wolf Monk. <laughs> Almost Welcome the all. Wolf Month here at Retro Encounter. <laughs> Almost completely Wolf Month. Would that be a good show? Uh, wolf Monk, Slowsy. Just you mean Tony Shaloub is a werewolf detective in San Francisco. <laughs> yes. Would you watch that? You're absolutely damn right. I would watch that. Yeah, I would too. Oh, the werewolf part would just be a bonus. Anyway, yeah, he, he, he has crippling OCD and is a werewolf. <laughs> it doesn't seem like a very good combination. I need to see how this works. Oh, okay. Uh, <laughs> well, if we're joking about that, let's... Yeah, so we have the quarry coming up. More wolves. Uh, episode 350 is coming up as well. And I'll leave that a surprise for now, but it's very exciting. And we also have the month of Mass Effect coming up on retro we briefly mentioned that because some of us are playing through those at the same time we were finishing up broken age and getting double double jennifer hale um if you'd like to email us the email address here is retro rpgfan.com please do uh, also remember to comment on the boards visit the facebook page rpgfancom on twitter and instagram and check out discord youtube and our twitch channel and also um, keep an eye out on the site for the shop that we recently opened. Um, there are sales every month and we try to kind of publicize those on social media. So keep an eye out, buy some RPG fan merch. Um, we also have two other lovely podcasts, Random Encounter, which John, I don't know if you want to give us a little preview of what's coming next on Random. Uh, when is this coming out again in October? I have absolutely- It's posting on my birthday, October 20th. October 20th? Okay, let's see the schedule here. Uh, October 20th. Yeah, so uh, if this is posting on October 20th, then next week should be uh, a Yakuza feature uh, where uh, we're going to be talking about the big Yakuza feature that came out a couple of weeks ago. Oh, um, you, mean, if, you mean the big Like a Dragon feature? Yes, the big Like a Dragon Yakuza feature. <laughs> oh, it, it, it's addressed in the feature. Um, <laughs> unless, of course, something massive drops, like if they if they shadow drop uh Tears of the Kingdom, then we'll probably be focusing on that instead. But we'll see. It's probably going to be Yakuza. Uh, we also have Rhythm Encounter, our music podcast. And coming up on that, we've got Castlevania for Spooky Season. And we're also going to have an episode on Pokemon. That's right. Uh, the Castlevania episode is going to land right on Halloween. And the Pokemon episode is going to be, I think, within a couple days of Scarlet and Violet coming out. Like some, like that same week or something. So the the timing is very, very deliberate for yeah. the, ne- the next couple rhythm encounters. <laughs> it worked out perfectly. 
And please, um, if you enjoyed listening, consider reviewing on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, or whatever format you use for your podcasts. Um, we love feedback and it definitely helps. So please, please review. Um, so let's talk about where to find us. So for me, Hillary, uh, the best way to reach me for RPG fan or adventure game quandaries comments would be on our Discord on EP Fire there. Where can everyone find you, Celosi? Right. Uh, I'm easiest to find on Twitter. I am at The Real Monsoon most of the time, at Evoker for Dogs at other times, and at RPG Fans Discord. I am Monsoon Mike. Great. And how about you, Jenna? You can find me at jlogan at rpgfan.com, or you can find me on Twitter at Jono underscore Logan. Well, thank you all for partaking in Adventure Game Month with me. Woo! Um, I know this has run a little bit long, but I think we had fun kind of going in the context around this game. So I think it's time to sign off and we'll be back with the quarry soon. Thanks so much for joining us. Um, Good night. Good luck. Happy birthday, Hillary. Thank you. (laughs) 